Welcome to What's My Thesis. I'm Javier Proenza, and today my guest is John Plipchuk. And you are actually one of the bigger guests that I've gotten on this show. From what Physically bigger. No, 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 no. I've had much bigger people <laughs> physically. Um, but you grew up in Canada, right? I did. I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, south central St. Mattel. Are you, uh, is, you guys used to have the Jets, right? We still do. And still... they were, until last week, the number one team in the NHL, which was staggeringly surprising because as a kid, loving the Jets and always having them lose to the Calgary Flames was a disaster. So the Flames were the were the big rival? That, they were that the big rival, to, at least to me. I don't know if they were in reality, but in yeah. my little world, that was the that was the rivalry. I'm a Florida boy, and, okay. and we, we got the Panthers when I was like, I, what year was that? I, I don't remember, but like, so my perspective comes from like, you know, very American hockey, you know, so like those teams, I think the Leafs were probably the biggest team that like I was really actively aware. Obviously, hockey comes from sure. Canada, so it's kind of ridiculous for a Florida boy to say that, but um, it's not. I mean, I love the fact that there are so many teams in markets that shouldn't have theoretically shouldn't have teams because when i was a kid they were like well they don't even have ice or snow so why should they have a hockey team yeah. but you know i love hockey i think that the more teams there are the better yeah yeah for sure um yeah and i just i just remember like they had to have like a humidity extractor <laughs> yeah. in in the miami arena yeah. which is what but but they won the the stanley cup i think uh I think it was like 95 or something. Anyway, yeah. when the team came, I got my, I got, I still have it, a baseball hat signed by all the, all the expansion team oh, awesome. players. So I was pretty into it, but it, uh, and I, I even tried to play, I could never do hockey stops, so, but you, you, you grew up playing and stuff. I played hockey a little bit and I was never very good. Okay. So that, um, I don't feel so bad. The brain and the body didn't work in conjunction to be able to be like, I knew what I wanted to do, but I just couldn't do it. And yeah. they, you know, there were a number of us who really wanted to play hockey, but we all sucked so bad that they <laughs> made an additional tier and went uh, to tier three. They made a tier four. And because we were all so bad, they wouldn't let anybody do body checking either. Oh, wow. And what ended my interest in actually playing hockey back then was, uh, I want to say that I'm going to preface pretty much everything with I say it's may or may not be true but <laughs> we played in a tournament we wanted to play in a tournament so we played in a tournament in roblin manitoba i don't know russell manitoba it's like an hour from roblin and we were playing this team we got out on the ice we start playing and it's full contact and oh. we had never played contact hockey and so we just got like slammed yeah, yeah and i, I got imagine. checked into the boards by who i remember as being theron flurry's little brother he okay. played for the flames all right. Um, and that was it. I just I wasn't going to play anymore. So, <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that you started making art when we were talking off air. Yeah. Uh, in 94. That's when you. Yeah, about then. I mean, it was probably 93 or 92 that I the whole art thing was available to me that I didn't realize was there because I had been playing in bands um, and was failing every class that I took in college and okay. finally got put on academic probation and they said if you fail one more class you're kicked out for five years wow and so the drummer in my band uh who is my best friend and who lives in la now because he went to ucla as well said well i'm going trying to get into the art school so if we take this class it's a studio class if you take the class and you get a b in the class 
you get to go into the art school. So I thought, how hard could that be? And so that was the art school that was UCLA or that was that was the... University of Manitoba. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so took the class, actually really enjoyed it, got into the art school, asked them if they would allow me to not have, not be on academic probation anymore. And for a couple of years, sort of learned the fundamentals of things. And the best part about it was, is that I didn't know what I was doing. So I didn't know I could make mistakes. Oh, that's great. Like yeah. there's, yeah, it was really liberating. And then got dumped and by girlfriend. Yeah. By, not girlfriend. by the school. <laughs> no, not by the school, by a girlfriend, which was sort of like this moment where I had all this free time and all this sadness. And uh, so yeah. it got channeled into the work and the emotion that I always tried to do in music really came through in art. Okay. And then became friends with a couple of guys, um, Michael DeMontier, Adrian Williams, Drew Langlois, Marcel Zama, and Neil Farber. And we started this little art collective called the Royal Art Lodge. Okay. And that started because the professors at the University of Manitoba had gone on strike. They left us the keys and we were there all the time anyway. So it was just like we had a studio and we were just practicing artists. So they went on strike, but they didn't deny you the facilities? Yeah. That's pretty neat. It was incredible. You yeah, know, yeah. and I remember it as being like a whole year, but the reality, I think it was like six weeks or something like that. But that was the genesis of this work that I started doing where I was trying to impress those guys. And there was like one body of work, which was like, sort of traditional oil painting and things like that that my professors liked but then this other scrappy aesthetic that i had those guys responded to and and i realized that you know putting text in the work and making these characters talk and and putting that emotion to the work was something that was a lot clearer and a lot more sincere for me mm -hmm. understanding what an art practice could be yeah so that's how I got into any of this. So Well, I got to see some of that uh, Royal Arts Lodge stuff at the, what was uh, Strange Realities, the, yeah. the show that Mario put together. Yeah. Which, and he was, he was saying that he had like, he was really excited to have access to that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, yeah. and he said that you brought it just in like a paper bag and he was like, this <laughs> precious stuff, which is one of the, always yeah. my favorite things is how artists treat their work versus yeah. like how, yeah. how people that respect the artists are like, Oh my God, this yeah. is... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because... And it hadn't been seen in a long time, right? Like, No, uh, I know that like Michael and, and Neil continued making a lot of stuff and Marcel was involved for a while, but he ended up moving to New York and uh, over time it sort of disbanded and then Michael and Neil started uh, the MDNF drawing work that they do together. Mm -hmm. And... We had done when we were when we were making drawings, like you know, I think in the first couple of weeks we had probably made a couple hundred drawings, and over the course of however many years, the core six people were active. Um, we probably made two thousand drawings. Oh wow! We had different piles, different suitcases that we kept them in. Like one was we all thought they were good. One was some people thought they were good, and one was they were all shitty. <laughs> Everybody and consensus. The other thing that we did was we tried to get shows. So uh -huh. we had sent, we would literally just fill a mailer with drawings and send them to galleries that we liked and say, if you like these 10 drawings, we'll send you 300 more for a show, <laughs> which we got rejection letters from everybody. 
but the best rejection letter that we got was from the National Gallery of Canada, why we actually thought they would do anything with us at that time. I bet they'd love it now. Oh, they, they, yeah, they did. Yeah. They, I mean, the show that toured, they ended up buying the entire show, wow. including all of the ephemera, like cassettes of our bands and all like posters for band shows and stuff like that, that Michael diligently archived all the time while, you know, I think of there's like two people, two types of people in the world. There's at, like at a family gathering, you've got the kids running around like idiots. And then you've got the parents that are taking the pictures. Yeah. yeah. And most of us fell into the kids running around like idiots camp. And Michael was a little bit of that, but mostly the parent taking a picture of everything because he loved it all so much. So uh, the, the rejection letter, sorry, I, I didn't want to. Oh, no, no, that's okay. So we get this rejection letter from the national gallery of Canada that says, children's artwork is very important to them and it's <laughs> a good idea not to send the original work in a mailer because it could get damaged <laughs> so when they ended up touring that show um and the national gallery acquired this vast amount of stuff in it was that rejection letter which i thought was pretty pretty great yeah <laughs> so they show they showed it with the i don't remember word. how i think like they had these vitrines there that we had like band like because all of us had bands and we had bands together um and so in in a lot of these cases they would have like posters advertising our bands playing or cassettes and mm -hmm. then they had a you know we sent letter we got letter rejection letters from all these different galleries too in the united states and in that we had one section that was just all our rejection letters which yeah. is kind of great so then do you were you when you say like, did Winnipeg have a big, uh, or Manitoba in general? And Manitoba, I'm assuming, is... That's the, like, the province. Province, the yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I apologize for my <laughs> limited no knowledge of, of uh, Canadian geography. But, <laughs> but um, so what, was there like a big gallery scene at the time? Or, or were you just uh, sending stuff to all galleries, regardless of like uh region like it sounds like you applied to some u.s ones we applied to mostly u.s ones if i recall again like i said i probably don't remember things accurately but the yeah. way i remember it was it was mostly galleries in the united states and and that sort of revolved around uh the one in particular that i remember was the carl hammer gallery in chicago uh -huh. that showed um henry darger work okay and we were all such super fans of that work that we were like, can you imagine if we had a show in the gallery that Henry Darger shows in? Yeah, that'd yeah. be incredible. <laughs> so, um, I think that we only hit the museums in Canada. Actually, okay, like you didn't do galleries. We didn't really do galleries. Like Winnipeg had a couple of galleries, and there was a really great like uh, Institute for Contemporary Art in Plugin in Winnipeg that did great shows. But as far as there, as far as any of us ever thinking that we could have careers doing this, we didn't really think it was possible. But so it then, was just a, it was a, like a DIY spirit kind of thing for you guys, which is really what Winnipeg is. Yeah. You know, um, you have, and this is in the '90s, right? So this so, is in the '90s. So were there art artist run spaces and that kind of thing? Yeah, like it's it, are there parallels to, to like LA that you can like you know spaces that? Well, I guess like artist curated projects, you Fowler's um, space would be the parallel would be like maybe ace art in winnipeg okay um and like the ica here would be like plug-in in winnipeg and then okay so know, the, so they're not that small you it's know, not that small because yeah, because I, I i live in my or i used to live in miami and i just went back 
And it's interesting to do that exercise, but it sounds like Winnipeg had something going on, especially yeah. in, in the 90s. I mean, vibrant music scene and, yeah. and vibrant art scene. And that was the res- uh, that is the result of um, just darkness and cold, cold. you know, because <laughs> we would go and hang out with each other. Uh-huh. But because it was so sort of bleak all the time or it seemed that way. There was a lot of creativity in building new worlds and building new understandings of what existence meant, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. It, it, it reminds was... me a little bit of Florence, which, like, oh, if yeah. you go compare it to Rome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah, that's, that, that's that Winnipeg in a nutshell. And then, so then in the music scene, what, what did you play? Were you a guitarist? Or... I was a guitarist and a singer in one band, and then uh, guitarist and partial vocalist in another band, and then... When I quit the first band, me and the drummer made a country band, like okay. a sort of really offensive, like Ween style country, kind of okay. like not racist though. <laughs> oh, Ween! I, I don't remember there that was country one, album. <laughs> one was they weren't overtly racist. There was a couple of questionable things in there, but it was the '90s. Everything was different, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what we really enjoyed was pushing buttons of people, okay. and like, you know, we were both in art school and. Like seeing two dudes make out was still a little controversial yeah, to people yeah, yeah. at a show, or like there was another person that was in our band who she didn't do anything but like whip us with a bull whip and <laughs> take her top off. Like, it was, so it, was it sounds weird. like uh, a country with a punk bent to it. Yeah, yeah. it was. Which I guess I, it's kind of what Ween did a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. except for the racism, of course. Oh, I shouldn't have said that because no, no, it, I, it was, I, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> It's fine. I, I don't think anyone will hold you to it. I'm sure that whoever knows the, the discography that well knows exactly what you're talking yeah. about. But yeah, um, I mean, there was a lot of things that happened in the 90s in music that are still, you know, I still listen to like 90s hip hop and sometimes I'm like, yeah. whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's crazy how you don't think things change that much, but really they, yeah, you know, they change quite a bit. They're always on a trajectory of, of you know. So what what I'm really impressed though, because it sounds like you went from, so like the the um, what year was the was was that strike that you guys? Because basically what I the, what is impressive to me is how aggressively from early on, even though you guys didn't think you would have a career, you guys went around trying to get shows in galleries and stuff. Whereas I feel like the more people I talk to nowadays, it seems like such a daunting task. Right. Uh, and I think maybe it goes a little bit to like not knowing that there was a, that there was a wrong way to do things. I think that's exactly it. I mean, there was a combination of not knowing there was a wrong way to do things and loving the work so completely and having such confidence in it, like total blind confidence, like, this is the greatest thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. That, and also thinking there's no, you know, what, like they can say no. Yeah. That's about it, you know? And I think that in, in that situation, had we not produced work uh, that amount and that, that what I thought was, you know, a pretty great level. Cause I look at some of those drawings now and I'm like, wow, I can't believe that we did that. Yeah, Yeah. You know? Um, Totally lost my train of thought. Uh, the the um, trying to figure out uh, basically the, the the thing that I'm I was asking was about uh, just how you like was was someone directing that was there somebody that was like in that group in the in the royal uh, 
Art Lodge, like, was somebody the kind of, the one that was like, or was it all just a general sense of like, hey, we should do this? Or did someone have like the more, because you mentioned that so, that there was the person that was the documenter and, and right. you know, like, what, what were the dynamics in the group? Was there somebody that was more outgoing and kind of, because uh, honestly, you said it started 93, 94 for you. And this was yeah. what year again? Sorry. This was probably 95. 95. So that's a pretty quick, like most, I think, I uh, I I definitely wasn't ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, for that kind of thing. So, um, like, it's to me that's really interesting. How does that dynamic work? Is there is there one person that I mean, we don't have to say. Yeah, you know, talk no, about no, the totally, fights. Totally. Well, I, there, yeah, there were a couple of little fights, but I think that, that what ended up happening was I ended up going. So I'm walking through the painting barn one day, and I needed to make up some classes in the summer. Mm -hmm. And I saw a poster on the wall that said, Yale School Summer School of Art and Music, $700. And if I was going to go to the U of M for that same duration, it would have been $1,300. So I went to the painting professors and they said, hey, I think I'm going to go to that. Mm -hmm. Like no clue, again, that you have to apply yeah. and that <laughs> it's hard to get in. <laughs> so of course, I, I'm gonna I be frugal, guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I did it and I applied and somehow I got in. And so I spent the uh, bit of the summer in Norfolk and came back and the guys had been continuously working and I sort of felt like I had developed more of a voice on my own too. And right around that same time, maybe 96, 97, the same curator that curated the Royal Art Lodge show brought drawings of Marcel Zama down to LA and showed them at Richard Heller and like Marcel exploded. Wow. And Marcel just was relentless in, you know, he went from showing at Richard Heller a couple of months or maybe a year later, uh, I think it was like 98 that he had a show at David's Werner and wow, okay. like, just like, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Right. And he was like relentless in, in trying to get these galleries to show the Royal Art Lodge too. So having had no success in the Royal Art Lodge stuff, like anybody actually responding in a positive way, Marcel pushing all these galleries started getting people more interested in it. So I ended up going to UCLA in 98. So I moved to here, I moved here and Marcel would have shows all over the place. And then right around maybe 2000 art lot started having shows too. Okay. And that coincided with me starting having shows because that was a whole crazy situation too. Like I was in, the first show that I did was in between my first and second year of graduate school at okay. China Art Objects. And it was just a one-off summer show. And then I had my first show at China Art Objects in 2000, which was two years into my graduate degree. And then my first show at Petzl in New York was three months before my thesis. Oh, wow. So it was <laughs> strange. How were those crits? Did you have a chip on your shoulder? And, you know... <laughs> I, I you guys this, don't understand <laughs> you know the funny thing is is that i have this mo i have these moments in my life where i'm just going like like how did this happen like yeah. how did it get here and i was so oblivious to the idea of having any success in that realm that i was just like happy that anything was happening you know but in the end i think you can't really control what happens, but you can be prepared. So yeah. you have to be in the right place at the right time and be prepared. And the only thing you can control is being prepared. That's and the Seneca that's, quote. 
all I did all the time was make drawings and stuff and just happened to have the right people see them at the right time. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, the whole Chinatown scene started exploding too, which was around when, what year was, what was that? 99, 2000. 99, 2000. So, um, where was China ob uh, art objects? Was it always in Culver city? No, no, no. They okay. were in Chinatown. Okay. They opened, I th believe in 99. Cause I remember when I was at UCLA, uh, there was this cool new art scene in Chinatown and them and black dragon Roger Herman's gallery were some of the first galleries there. Mm -hmm. And China art objects was like, it was weird because I met, um, Francis Stark. She came through studio visits, did a talk at UCLA. And the thing that happened was, she popped her head into my studio and saw what I was doing. She's like, can I look? And I'm like, yeah, of course. And she's like, these are great. And I'm like, you want them? Like, cause I was like, wow, someone actually likes this. So I gave her some. And then a couple of weeks later, Laura Owens came by and Francis brought her into my studio and I gave her some drawings. And then a couple of weeks later, Pay White came by and I gave her some drawings, but she was like, no, 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 I have to pay for them. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, five bucks each. <laughs> and she gave me a check for like 135 bucks. And I thought that I'd won the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. So then she brought Steve Hansen over and Steve came in and he was like, do you want to do something in the summer? And I was like, sounds great. You know, like no, no idea, awareness of, yeah. Awareness yeah. of how things should happen or. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. How difficult it is if you actually like. Yeah sweat it out and stress it instead of just doing it the way that you yeah. know yeah yeah and so you know that then we just started hanging out in chinatown all the time and that scene was so incredible for building me as an artist and not just in having any kind of career but also like there was a dialogue and uh -huh. any night at hop louis there would be all of these different artists hanging out. And like I said, we were there probably five nights a week just hanging out. Yeah. Or on Saturdays at the gallery, if things were slow, I would bring drawings there every Saturday in a Trader Joe's bag, like I did for <laughs> Mario. Um, you know, and there'd be people that were going to buy them. And so if it was slow on a Saturday, we'd be sitting in the gallery, you know, playing Settlers of Catan or something. Oh, wow. But it was okay. just like, everybody was always together and always like interacting and, and yeah. cross pollinating. And it was a pretty magical time. Was it as divided by, um, graduate like schools that people like, was, was it the UCLA crowd versus the Cal arts crowd? Or was it all m more intermixed? Because I find, I find sometimes there is that like, not, I don't think it's like an intentional thing, but it's the people you know. So when you yeah. go out, you hang out with the people you know. Was there more cross-pollination back then? I, I think, think there was. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, the way things happened for me, I got so busy by 2001, 2002 that, you know, I spent a little bit less time there and I was doing a lot of traveling and showing in a lot of different places. And so I realized that, you know, like the... Kordansky and Dan Hoog and Joel Mesler. Joel had had his gallery there for a while and then they moved around to the cul-de-sac. And <clears throat> I don't think that, the, like, I think that there it was a pretty even mix. I know mm -hmm. that Roger, his effect on having UCLA people there um, probably was a little bit stronger, but because he was such a magnetic person, 
you would have people from all different schools. Mm. You know, he showed it. He didn't care who he showed. He would show UCLA people. He would show anybody if he liked the work. Yeah. And we ended up moving back to Canada around 2006 for a couple of years. We my, being, you, you have my wife, wife yeah, okay. and I, um, because my mother had died in 2005 and my dad was living by himself and I had a pretty good career going and I kept my studio here and we decided we're going to go back to Canada and spend, you know, he was 82 at the time. So we were a little concerned that we would miss his last time too. Yeah. Which is funny because the whole time he was just like, you're an idiot. <laughs> he Why lived for doing... another life. <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm done. You yeah. don't, you don't need to be around me. What are you going to do? Like, you know, just go and work. That's your job. Go yeah, and work. Yeah. And, you know, during that time, because I felt like I was a little bit disconnected, I was here a lot, but, um, you know, I had assistant in the studio who did a fair amount of the work making okay. and I had kind of fallen into that. Like, you know, it's funny when I think about it, like the professors that we had at UCLA all had these big studios and they had all these people working for them and... I'm sure that they maintained an authorship of the work in a way that wasn't necessarily obvious from the outside. So uh. if I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh, you have this demand and you have this many people working for you to fulfill that demand, your job becomes less. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of what I started doing where I relied heavily on my assistant to make work. I would come in and do little embellishments and things like that. The sad part is, is that it made me completely miserable yeah, because yeah. I wasn't connected to the work in the same way. Mm. But because the demand was there, I had, you know, had to do, had to fulfill the demand. I mean, I realize now, you know, 20 years afterwards that I didn't need to fill the demand. You know, yeah, I yeah. could have just said, no, I'm just not going to do it. I have to make it all myself. Yeah. But you know, it was sort of like what I thought an art career was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that makes total sense. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, because so I've seen some of your sculptural work. I've seen some of your drawings. What is your main, like, I guess the main question I want, I'm curious about is, like, from the early days, you know, like the 90s, uh, early 90s, when you first started to now how do you feel like your the the content of your work has changed your 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 focus has changed especially because it's interesting to hear that this period like to, uh, you know like a career is a long thing right yeah. and uh not that you need to do anything to stay relevant but to stay interested right i think uh, so like how how has that evolution happened for you well so i started with drawings and then i moved into paintings and then uh on one incredible day I had started work for Petzl for the second show that I was going to do there. And Friedrich came in and he looked at the paintings and he's like, oh, what is this? <laughs> Which is funny because prior to Giovanni interdying in 2002, Giovanni also came into my studio that summer and he was just like, oh, fuck, bust. These are awful, <laughs> you know? And I'd just done a show of those paintings at the gallery and they sold a bunch of them. And so... I kind of expected him to be going like, hey, you're awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in reality, which was, you know, so powerfully meaningful to me, he was like, this is garbage. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. And Petzl comes in and he's like, oh, these are awful. <laughs> and I was like, okay. 
ended up getting pretty drunk that day, going to this opening part after party with Farrah Fawcett and Keith Edmire. And <clears throat> the next day, as hungover as, or possibly still drunk as usual, um, get into the studio at six o'clock in the morning because that was my work ethic. I worked super early and I worked all day. Okay. Like and, till, till five kind of thing? Or? Yeah, five or later. I had okay. no kids. So, you know, I didn't have to do anything. But do you work. have kids now? I do. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I was like, you know what? Fuck that guy. I'm going to make, they couldn't back out of the show because it was two months away. I was like, I'm going to make the worst show that New York <laughs> has ever seen. And I made these sculptures out of socks and mm-hmm. made these weird figures and stuff and shipped it all off. <clears throat> Just waited. I shouldn't be that passive aggressive, but it was funny to me at the time. <laughs> I get to the gallery and I thought the work was good, but I also thought like, boy, this is like, they're really, going to hate it. They're going to hate it. Yeah. And they start unpacking the crate and, and he knew that he wasn't getting very many paintings at that point. And he was just like, Oh my God, what is this? This is incredible. So I had <laughs> so, sh- shifted unintentionally there in the right, you, like, in the right way. I think maybe you had to get back to that detachment that you originally had. You Absolutely. Know, like, like that, Absolutely. that's sort of like, yeah. ah, who cares? I've like, been chasing that for, for 20 years, you yeah. know? So a lot of that work revolved around the, originally the drawings and things revolved around sort of interactions between family members, not nothing in nothing directly, but just sort of like I grew up an only child with doesn't seem old now, but like older parents, uh-huh. you know? And so because my father's family was all in Ukraine and my mother's was the second youngest in her family, everybody that I knew was old. Yeah, and yeah. I would hang out at the church and like make progress with the old ladies. And I was the altar boy for all the funerals. And like people would come up to me when I was a kid and going, you're going to, you're going to be an altar boy at my funeral. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And I loved it because, you know, I got 50 cents. Uh-huh. I got to go downstairs afterwards and eat pickles and sandwiches. Wow. So it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And so it was probably midway through my schooling at UCLA that I, had this like thing hit me like a ton of bricks about the mortality of my parents. Yeah. People dying wasn't new to me when I was a kid. And my dad was always very like, well, we're going to die. This is the key to the safety deposit box. Go to the bank, get the stuff. Funeral arrangements are made. Just, you know, do what you have to do. And I'm like, I'm like nine. Yeah. Right? Oh, wow. You know? And, oh, cause they were our older parents. Cause yeah. they were older. And so anyways, at some point this mortality hit me and then my mother had a sort of second bout of heart trouble, which made that more real. And like, I just started really worrying about their mortality and like what happens after they're gone. Like I felt like an astronaut, like I don't have anything. I'm not tethered to anything like, yeah, yeah. you know? And so a lot of the work revolved around that around 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, I had a show in Paris which was the first show that was the first time that my parents were like, and I'd done a ton of shows at that point. It was the first time my parents actually saw like the art thing being a reality and Mm -hmm. them not just thinking like, well, we don't know what he does in LA and, and, but you were already making a living. I was making a living. Yeah. 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 They just didn't understand. It was just nebulous to them. Yeah. To to my dad, it was like, show me your tax return. Yeah. (laughs) Like (laughs) I'm, I'm in art forum, dad. (laughs) It's like, I don't care. I don't know what that is. And so, you know, I had this show in Paris 
I called my mom the night of uh, after the opening because the time difference there was like in the afternoon or something and and she was really excited and they were both really excited and she was like yeah I was gonna tell you this thing I went to the doctor a couple weeks ago and he said that I had some kind of aortic aneurysm or embolism or something like that then he called me back a couple days ago and said it's fine and I'm like okay still (laughs) torturing myself inside yeah like that I'm not there you know and my wife and I had never gone on a honeymoon so we decided after the show in Paris we'll go to Strasbourg for a few days and just kind of hang out and then I get uh it was weird I had to do this drawing for Art Unlimited in Basel for 2005 and I was stressing out about it couldn't fall asleep finally fell asleep and woke my wife up laughing and in the morning she was like what's going on and I'm like I don't know I had this dream this thing came to me it was like quick draw McGraw or something or Snagglepuss Mm. or something and it was just it made me feel so happy and and at peace you know and she's like wow that's weird well you woke me up laughing so that's great (laughs) and I'm like yeah that's great so I go into the bathroom strip down turn on the bathtub the phone rings and in that second I knew my mom was dead oh no you know so i think that she came yeah she came you know and let me know that everything was gonna be okay yeah and so anyways when you worry about your parents dying all the time and then they actually die there's this weird relief that happens that almost feels like it shouldn't happen yeah yeah you know and so is there guilt associated with that a little bit or or i didn't feel guilty about it but i definitely felt like it wasn't some it wasn't an it shouldn't have been a normal feeling but like like all of a sudden that worry was gone mm-hmm. because the moment was final. Yeah, yeah. And I started being concerned about my dad. We ended up moving back to Canada and within a year he died. Okay. And so, and that was another one where literally the, you know, in and out of the hospital, he was in the hospital for like four months and then out of the hospital, this guy was like a, a, an ox, like yeah, yeah. the strongest man alive, drinking poison and all that sort of stuff, like Ukrainian peasant stock. And, he ended up having uh, like a bunch of GI bleeds and they put, they thought he had had a heart attack. So we were treating for that, but it really wasn't that. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> what ended up happening was he calls me up one day and he's like, I can't make it up the stairs. So I went and got him, took him into the hospital again. This is in the summer and I was just getting ready to go to Zurich to do a, a set piece for this. There's a playwright uh, and writer in, in Zurich named Sibyl Berg. And so at the Schauspielhaus in Zurich, I designed the set for this play. And I had to leave in two weeks and my dad's in the hospital again. And he, I'm visiting him in the hospital. The doctor's like, we need to talk. And I'm like, okay, that's the worst thing you want to hear from a doctor. Yeah, yeah. And the doctor's like, you know, three months tops, six months, if you're lucky. Um, and... They like, we haven't really talked to him about it yet. Um, you can take him home if you want, but it's going to be awful. So you should probably think about hospice. Like, okay. Trying to, you know, wrap my head around that being kind of final, right? Go into his room and he's like, I thought you were going to LA today. And I'm like, no, I'm going to stick around. He's like, you, you don't work hard enough. And I'm like, dude. You're I'm working at being a son. In and out of the hospital. Yeah. He's like... He's like, you don't need to worry about me. They're going to try some new pills tomorrow and I think I'll be fine. And I'm like, okay, go home six in the morning. The next day, I get a call. He died. Oh, wow. You know, and the whole time 
I'm thinking to myself, like, do I go to Zurich and do this thing? Or do I stay here just in case something happens? And the whole time he's just going like, don't be an idiot. Do your job, yeah. you know? So then they're both gone. And again, it's that moment of like, like re- relief, you know? Mm-hmm. And I continued making the work that I was making, but it felt like it was completely insincere mm-hmm. because it revolved around mortality and that mortality event had happened. And I didn't feel like what I was doing was sincere mm-hmm. anymore. My assistant ended up moving to Berlin. I didn't hire somebody else. Is this the same time that you that you had uh, that that you were miserable because you weren't having such a direct hand in the work? Yeah, you were trying. To, so absolutely. this was this is around the it same. It all time. happened at the same time. Okay. It was like the perfect storm of like shit storm. Yeah. So yeah. I just wanted to know if you had had two shit storms. Oh no, I've had say. multiple shit storms. You know, <laughs> but this in this particular this, case, this the, they the, coincide. This is the yeah. first one, the yeah. first big one, and so you know, then all of a sudden the economy crashes. And the art market crashes, yeah, yeah. 2008. And trying to understand that, you know, and, and having what ended up being like, I had a studio in Winnipeg that I never used. And I had a studio here that now sat empty. You know, we were trying to figure out whether we move back to LA or not. And this thing where I would just sit in the studio, like looking at the walls, like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Because that motivation that I had had was gone. Mm-hmm. that I could, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't yeah, yeah. try and pretend that I was doing the same. I couldn't pretend. So I ended up making, I decided that what I was going to do is just try and make some stuff that I didn't know how to use the materials. I would remove the narrative from the work and I would just see what happened. And so for a few months I did that and I ended up making a show in for the gallery in New York in 2009 called The War. And it was just these two um, sets of masks opposing one another on the gallery walls. And I was pretty happy about that because that seemed sincere. Because mm-hmm. I was just like a little scientist in the studio trying to figure out what was going on and making everything myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, went went through that, started using all these materials that were probably incredibly toxic to oh, be yeah. using all the time. but still having fun seeing what happened and had a show in Japan and remember being there, having this show and, and kind of creeping up behind the gallerist and he was talking to some collectors and they were like, but he didn't do any fuzzy characters anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and, and they're like, well, why did he change? <laughs> you know? So maybe because he felt like a fraud. Yeah, because it felt like a fraud, you know. So, yeah, it's funny. It's funny how that happens. Can I ask you? I, uh, one thing I know from your social media presence is uh, Jungian psychology is a is is a big thing. I've uh, I've I, I'm well since we're talking about it. My father passed away last year, so okay. a lot of this is resonating with me. It I, except I wasn't dreading his death. I thought he was gonna die in his like. Because my grandparents both died at over 90, yeah, yeah. you know, and he died at 76 and I was like, oh shit. Yeah. So I've been kind of going through like a, like I'm watching my cholesterol and all yeah. these things. Whereas before I was like, oh, I'm going to live till 90. 90. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I think that the, the rules have changed for anybody born after 1952. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, um, I have a bit of a confession to make about the Jungian stuff. You don't, you're not into it. Okay. So it's, it's a, it's a character. 
I had a gallery in, in LA called Grice Bench for a little while. And there were a group of people that used to hang out. One guy was a, a guy named um, Matt Kwan and Jason Goble. And they go by Barry Bonds and Dog Food on Instagram. Okay. And I love these guys. And we became friends. They would, it would the best time ever was like after the opening, after the drinks and dinner, after the opening, we would go back to the gallery and stay up late and talk about shit. Mm-hmm. And so these guys would always be there. And I became friends with them. And when I was having a show in New York in 2020, Matt was sending me ads for my show. And it was all these collage things. And I'm like, I, lo- I love this. Do you want to post them? And he's like, yeah. So I said, here's my password. Post as much as you want. Because the less time I spend on Instagram, the better. Uh-huh. Because I can just go down a wormhole there. No, no. I get, And I get just that, yeah. waste an entire day. Yeah. And so Matt and Jason would send these things and post them. And then I started making some. So the, thi- I, the, one, the things with your face cut with out my face and put on cut out, random yeah, pictures. Random and, yeah. pictures and stuff. And so, you know, I would I would make some too and we, I would post them. And then, you know, I just said to Matt, like, look, um, I need to take a break from Instagram. As long as nobody does anything hateful yeah. or anything like that, I don't care. I'm not even going to look at it and go for it. And so... You know, Matt was like, this is the funniest thing is he's like a resident at Tulane University getting his medical degree and somehow found time to make these things and post them. So his interests infiltrated that and he's been trying to get me into Jung forever. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm like... I'm a moron, really. And <laughs> so you don't have like a a deep uh, connection with Jungian therapy. I don't. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah. And so I feel like at this point I need to like make make it clear that I'm not the uh, I'm not always the author of the Instagram posts. Okay. And you know when he started doing like, and this is the difference between like you know a 50 year old and a and a 35 year old where. He gets people, he gets what people are interested in and what they're looking at. And like, you know, I'll make a post and it'll get like three likes. And then he'll make some weird post about like the 10 things I did yesterday. Or this is my 10 <laughs> things for motivation. And, and it'll get like 100 likes or whatever. Wow, that's hilarious. And I'm like, fuck, okay. And then he started posting the Jungian stuff. And I'm like, okay. And then, you know, I'll, one day in the mail... um, books start arriving and Matt's like you need to read these books and I'm like you know I can't read like I can read but I I have to listen because I can't if I read something um I don't absorb it but if I listen to it I do and so I'm gonna have to either like read these books into a thing and listen to it afterwards or get them on audiobook and I just started and I'm like didn't get in there no (laughs) so continue to be a fraud (laughs) <laughs> no, that but that's so interesting. I I could have sworn based up until that's why I've, I had it as a follow up because all of us are yeah. st- all of the stuff that we've been talking up until this point is about interpersonal dynamics and yeah. whatnot, relationships and all of that. And I was like, oh, so this is all somehow young based. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not. That's great. Nope. Um, <laughs> so then, like, uh, can, can I ask you what uh, Rudy Bust is? Yeah. So when we were in the art lodge. Um, there was one day that we were in uh, the sculpture building and we were making some sculptures together. 
Mm. And there was an art show at the University of Manitoba uh, University Center. And you could put one artwork in. And I submitted this giant painting that I had made, sort of in the more like made the professors happy way. Mm. And Michael and Adrian and I were sitting around making these these sculptures. And <clears throat> we were just having a hoot making these sculptures. And we thought they were funny. And then we wrote a, a scrap art manifesto because everything had to be scrap art. It had to be made out of shitty materials and all this sort mm. of stuff. And and we're like, well, we should put this into the art show. But we're not going to put it in under our own name. So let's make up fake names. So I wanted a name that kind of sounded like what would be a porn name or something. Yeah, yeah. And so I ended up being Rudy Bust. And then it's a great porn name. I never thought of it in that in that <laughs> in that context, yeah. but yeah, I see, now I see where it comes now from. I see where it comes from. And so we submitted. We went into. We carried. We made thirty three sculptures that day, and you know we went to go to the bar to have a drink. So on our way, we stopped at the university center, put all our sculptures in, put price tags on them like ten thousand dollars, which was ridiculous. Yeah, and put our fake names. Went and had a drink. We're walking back after having a drink at the bar, and pass by a dumpster and realized that all of our sculptures were in the dumpster. <laughs> so we were like, that's weird. We took them all out and we put them back into the show and then we went home. So the next day we get to the show and our sculptures are gone again. And of course they're in the dumpster. And we were like, okay, that's a, a pretty good response to this. <laughs> like, And so that was the moment where I started differentiating between the work that I made to please others and the work that I made to please myself and my friends. Um, and for a while did two bodies of work, you know, one that was John Plumchuk and one that was Rudy bust because I felt better about the Rudy bust work, uh -huh. but you know, I got graded on the John Plumchuk work. Yeah. So that's sort of how that came about. And then it, it kind of continued into UCLA when I started really leaning into a scrappier aesthetic and trying to make things out of stuff that's going to degrade anyway and watching the patina of, of life happen on a piece of paper or, you know, whatever you did, you know, mm. so. So you haven't found that that makes um, collect people collecting the work? Like you're not, it sounds like you're not that concerned about archival, well, things being archival or, or are they archival in a way that they end up getting that patina and that's the intention, but they're not necessarily going to yellow in a certain way. Yeah. See, this is the thing. I like looking at things that have yellowed because it, it signifies time. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand that people think about things as being archival or, or, or whatever, but the archival nature, like nothing is really archival. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can make a bronze sculpture and that can get ruined over time too. Mm -hmm. Um, and to me, the immediacy of the materials was what was more important than trying to figure out whether it was going to last forever or not. Mm -hmm. The idea was almost more important because, you know, in 100 years or 200 years, none of that's going to be around, but the idea might still exist. Yeah. And so to me, that was the more important part. Um, but in terms of like collectors' re response to that, was that was there any any hesitancy? Oh, yeah, okay, always. so that is a yeah. You haven't you haven't cracked a code that <laughs> no code crack. I'm like taking notes. I'm like, wait, yeah, yeah. so you can make things out of scrap and people will okay. buy them? <laughs> okay, so this is the thing. Like when I think about some of the artwork, some of the things that I think are some of the most special things ever, um, 
if you think about the Duchamp stuff, which I don't necessarily, I don't remember what the name of the person who really had authorship on some of those things was, but she was, she made the fountain and then he took the idea and. Oh, know, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to look it up because as I understand, there was a woman who made that and he ended up basically doing it and showing it. Was her name Armut? No, <laughs> I should look it up. Um, it was like a count something. She used to hang out with them. Um, but I'll, I'll send it to you later. Was it, was it, but is it like, uh, is it something that is kind of plagiarist a little bit? Is well, that, or, or is the, is the context that like it was okay? I, I don't, don't that I don't know. Okay. I imagine like when that was 1912. So I don't know that plagiarism existed for men back then. Yeah. yeah. You know, no, especially no, that's in what that I, context, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, I can take whatever I want. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, but like none of his actual assemblages exist anymore. They're all replicas. Yeah. You know, the idea exists. Mm -hmm. um alexander calder circus you yeah, ever yeah. seen images of that shit where he made shit out of like scraps of things and yeah yeah i saw it at the whitney is incredible and still in relatively good condition but you know i imagine if somebody's gonna hang something in their house they don't want shit falling off at all the time yeah <laughs> nobody really wants to have you come and fix it if they don't have to except uh when you i had the absolute pleasure to go the National Gallery of Canada acquired a big installation that I had done and it was stored in a place where the heat went out and part of it froze. And as a result, part of one of the figures cracked because there was something on it. And I went to the National Gallery of Canada to install it and they went into the conservation area, which is the best. Uh -huh. And these magicians were like, okay, well, would you make it out of this, this, that? Okay, this. Okay, okay. So they took this nylon powder. It was like fabric, like a t-shirt fabric with type 1, 2 wood glue on it, mixed into it. And they put this powder on the inside and they applied heat to the outside. And all of a sudden the crack was just gone. Wow. And I'm like, that was magic. So <laughs> I said, you know, I'm sorry that I make trouble for you guys. And they're like, oh no, this is awesome because we need to figure out what we have to do. So conservator wise i think that i'm conservator's darling um collector wise maybe not maybe not so much of a darling yeah but, i mean the other thing i think about collecting is there's an awful lot of people that collect things and then resell them and to me that's not collecting that's yeah, yeah buying and selling the speculation speculation um and if you're a collector ultimately you are uh you know, a steward of the work while you have it because you're not fucking taking it with you. Yeah. You know, you maybe leave it to your kids. They might have it for a while, but if, you know, it's, if it's important work and it exists beyond my lifetime or anybody's lifetime, nobody owns it. Yeah. Really. You can own it for a while. So you're supporting an artist and you're just taking care of it for a while. Maybe it makes you happy. So, um, I think that people should, think less about the archival nature of it in that sense if it's non-archival work mm -hmm. and think about it like how do i how do i keep this good how yeah, do i yeah. keep it like this that's my that's their job yeah you know that's interesting do you do you have well i don't know too many people that have uh, a relationship with collectors the same way that you do right or especially on this show um what what uh what are some things that like maybe surprised you about that and 
also have you and then the easy one is like have you had things be resold for insane oh, yeah. amounts of money and you're like what <laughs> no, well it, it, it depends like, on the insane amount of money i mean and I, you don't get a cut i bought things back myself okay back a long time ago and what what, what did you buy back I made a sculpture. Um, there was this cat that used to hang around our neighborhood when we lived in Silver Lake. And we called it Crossy because it had crossed eyes. <laughs> and one morning I woke up and I went down to get to my car and sure enough laying right next to the curb, it was Crossy and he was dead. Okay. And I was like, bummer. So I went to the studio and I made this sculpture of Crossy. Okay. So you didn't, I was thinking this was going to go into no, no, like taxidermy. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> Um, and I called it dying in a belly full of anger because I don't know why I did yeah, yeah. anyway. So it's evocative. This work went to the show at Petzl that I was making the ugly work for what I thought was ugly work. And then <clears throat> somebody bought it for $3,000 or something like that. What year? And then 2003. Oh, okay. So that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's then, more, yeah. I mean, it, it like, I don't know what it, it turns out to be now, but 3000 20 years ago is not the same as 3000 now. No. Yeah. So then it came up for auction and I was asked to protect it. And I did. So I bought it back for like $10,000 and I ended up giving it to my friend. Um, but it's a weird thing. So I've had things go over, not crazy amounts. Um, not like millions and no, 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 never hit the hundred, never hit the hundred thousand mark, I think. Yeah, so, yeah. um, but I've had things go well over the estimate and then I've had things go for like nothing. Wow. And recently that happened with a sculpture that was in a collection in New York and that one, I actually, you know, the, the, um, the people who bought it are some Institute in Germany, which is great. Uh, uh-huh. um, they got it for a song. But wait, when you say nothing, the, p- people don't bid nothing. They like, it's no, just no, a no. low bid. It's it like, like, like super low. Super low. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, but that's the weird thing about value is yeah. that that's a perception, mm-hmm. you know, um, the idea that anything that any one human being makes is a collective delusion about value. It's like money. Money is, we all believe that money is is real, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. a collective delusion, you know. So when you start having these prices go up, then you have a bunch of people collectively delusional about those things being that value. I mean, they might sell it for that tangible amount of money, but like we saw with NFTs, yeah, yeah. you know, People were all like rah rah and about you know I made sixteen million dollars on this thing and then now they're not worth anything yeah you know because nothing is worth anything yeah, yeah. you know the idea is worth something maybe not bored apes but you know most ideas are worth something which is interesting because when I when you asked me for um, topics the one thing that I was thinking about was the perception of reality because I've been uh-huh. watching a lot of Nova uh, on PBS. Okay. And how humans tend to move in these collective thought patterns, mm-hmm. even though we all feel like we're individuals. Yeah. yeah. You know, so that's a, a, to me, that's an interesting thing to think about with regards to, 
value of work, you know. Does it have you as no judgment, but as someone that has not had that experience? Yeah. Uh, the the closest I would have is that like the more people listen to the show, sure. the more I'm like, oh okay, there's something here. Yeah. Does does that? How does that? How does the valuation of your work? Like, is that a, a struggle? Is that something that affects you when you when you start seeing things go up in value and you're like, hey, <laughs> going up in value? Maybe not. Maybe it gives you a, sol- a false sense of of your own personal value. Uh-huh. Um, going down is the opposite. You know, and so you do feel it, you do feel it. And you, I like, you know, you struggle, it's getting back to that, that place, you know, where it doesn't matter. Nothing really matters. Yeah. yeah. All of these outside, um, things that happen to anybody, if they're doing something and everyone probably has a different belief in this, but for me, I think that any of those outside stimuli really aren't doing anything but deterring you from what you're supposed to be doing, which is just making work, mm-hmm. you know? And that this is something that I realized when I was playing music, that what I wanted was a music career. What I wanted to do was ride on a tour bus and tour and be famous and all this stuff. But what I wasn't doing was writing genuine, sincere songs. You know, I couldn't yeah. do that for some reason. And, you know, this happened to me early in my career when I started having success where I was like, Oh, well this is supposed to happen now when two years ago, I didn't think it was possible and it wasn't a part of my, my brain pattern. And now it was, then I started expecting things, you know, like (laughs) I had this funny situation where I was doing a show somewhere and one of the people that was there said, well, let's go for lunch. And when somebody says, let's go for lunch, usually I'm not paying for lunch. <laughs> so at lunch, when the bill comes, I was like, oh, you want me to pay? It's fucking delusional, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. why? You know, why? You know, It's also fair. If someone invites you to lunch, there's a, there's, there's a maybe, it, it, you, you know, I, I sure. mean, I get what you're saying. I, I understand what you're saying, but it's, I, I want to give you some credit. Sure. That's not that delusional. Like, you know, but there is a difference between let's get lunch and let me buy you lunch. So fair right, enough. Yeah. Right, right. But, but I get what you're saying. But, but you know, when I think about it, it's like, like I should be so lucky as to be able to wake up in the morning and go to the studio and make something. Yeah. And not think that, that there is any value in it other than the satisfaction that I got out of doing it, mm-hmm. you know? And if there is value to it, and maybe this is the delusion that I think that things should be that sincere and that naive. Um, you know, maybe that's the wrong way of thinking about it, but I sort of feel like I've been doing this for almost 30 years. And every time I get to that point where I've just kind of almost given up Mm -hmm. is when the best things that I make happen. You know, I think about that Bukowski quote, uh, as the spirit wanes, the form appears. And I think about the moments in my life that I've made what I feel it is the best work has been in those moments where nothing matters nothing exists only that moment of emotion you know is that work that you like better or is that work that you're surprised that because it has that sincerity it has a bigger reaction than you expected or both i think it's that it has it has a bigger reaction because the true self is shining through 
not the facade st- of what I think it's supposed to be. I still feel like you're you you do read young. <laughs> I might. I mean, that's, that's why Matt. That's I think that's why, why he's already about doing it because you do he, say stuff sometimes where right. I'm like, okay, maybe I think that way. I just haven't been able to. You uh, know. The only thing that's myth- missing is you say, "Well, it's in my shadow." <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. I mean, so we had. I was telling you about playing in bands, and um, you know, I'd done a couple of shows in you know, 2019, 2020 and had just had a show in New York and then the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. and had this really sort of beautiful thing happen other than like not appreciating the death of the pandemic and the suffering, but appreciating the stopping Mm -hmm. of it, you know, having this moment where, you know, if we as a species need to stop, we can it's yeah, not yeah. unthinkable. Yeah. You know, yeah. I saw it happen. And I also had that coincide with me starting to do some gardening and, and some aquaponic stuff and always trying to get the thing at the right equilibrium rather than just allowing that e- equilibrium to happen naturally. Right? What's aquaponic? What is it's that? It's like a, I got a fish tank on the bottom and then the water goes up and pours into an aggregate that has plants growing in it. Okay. So the fish eat the food, poop poop feeds plants okay right and i'm trying to get it right trying to make sure that it's at this equilibrium and i'm like oh it needs this i add this it needs this i add th- i add this and at one point was like fuck it i can't do this it doesn't work right and i'm just going to leave it alone and sure enough four months later it's got the strongest biofilter going and it's like you know unstoppable mm-hmm. and it just was neglect that helped it get to that point right and so I learned that about life equilibriums and I learned that, you know, gardening is about watching mm. and time um, and you're watching time go and sort of right around that time. Um, one of my closest friends, you know, we hadn't seen each other for a while and we texted every day, but then like, you know, he texts me, he's like, you want to come over tomorrow? So I go over to this place. My daughter's playing with his daughter, having a great day. It was like a weird, like, day of all of the stuff that we used to do when we hung out together. You know, he played in the bands that we played in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, it was even weird. Like, we ended up playing PlayStation Baseball, which is something that we'd done 15 <laughs> years earlier, right? So he yeah, yeah. texts me the next morning. I was supposed to go to an opening at Nino Meyer. Um, that I was in and I ended up skipping it because I was having a nice time. And so anyways, next morning he texts me, he's like, I don't want you to worry. I think I'm, I think I got COVID. And I'm like, I don't really care. Yeah. You know, like I care. I don't want to get anybody else. I don't want to give it to anybody, but as far as actually getting it, I'm not worried. Yeah. You know? And, uh, he starts describing what's going on with him and I'm like, dude, I think you're having a heart attack. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, this sort of goes back and forth. He's like, I'm going to get checked out. Later in the day, and then I texted his wife, and I'm like, I'm a little concerned. She's like, I'm, you know, I'm gonna take him to get a COVID test and all this stuff. And then we, my daughter comes running up the backyard, and she's like, this is like 20, 30 minutes later, and she comes running up the backyard, and she's like, his dad's dying. I shouldn't say her name. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, keep it up. Anyways, um, and I was like, holy shit. So we got in the car, drove over there, sure enough, dead as a doornail, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. 
And this was like the guy that we played music with, really close friend, sort of pillar of the friend group. Like everybody loved him, mm-hmm. Tony. Um, he was friends with all of the artists that I was friends with when I first started. Like he'd, know, he'd known them, you know, from way back when. So he was, yeah, it was just like this incredible person. And I had that moment of, so this was the next, you know, these, I hadn't had somebody die in years. Yeah, yeah. Joyce Mansato died in 2019, which was a little bit of a shock. Um, cause I didn't expect it, but you know, Joyce was the first of the three cause they come in threes. And so when Tony died, uh, I had this moment of like, all I can do is make ghosts. And so I started making these ghosts. I don't even know where I got on this. How did I get on this? Because uh, you mean this train of thought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Okay. Cause, yeah. Because really, all I think it's all, I'm I'm interested. All I'm trying to get to is the sincerity aspect of it. So I think it was the Bukowski quote that you said. It, right. It's, okay. It's how yes, this relates. That's it. Yeah. And yeah. so you know, for months after he died, I found myself in the studio making ghosts for no reason. It was pandemic. Everything was shut down. Still, you know, yeah. there was no reason to be. Like there were no deadlines, there were no anything. And so sitting in there making these things, sort of repeatedly making these things, um, was like one of those moments of that complete sincerity in what felt like a completely decimated soul. Like yeah. I just felt crushed, yeah, you know, yeah. and I, I know our whole friend group felt the same way. And coming out of that, you know, I ended up showing the work and, and having a couple of really successful shows of that work. And again, it's that like, I couldn't have made it if I wasn't super fucking ruined. Yeah. yeah, You know, so coming out of that now, I'm like, wow, I just need to get ruined all the time. (laughs) So I don't know how to make that happen. Uh, Maybe you should go see a union therapist. Because I think the wrong lesson might have been learned there. No, I'm teasing. That's that's really interesting. It it's it's interesting. It is interesting because I I'm you know I mostly interview somewhat uh, earlier career artists. I mean it's a, it's a privilege to have you here, and and I think that a lot of my audience is going to get a lot from this conversation, because I feel like ultimately you know there's there I've talked to people that don't necessarily aren't necessarily pursuing a career of like where they're trying to chase the market down or, or, or I mean, right. or whatever. I, that, that's a weird way of saying it, but, but people are doing it. Yeah. So. But, um, but it's interesting to hear somebody who has had commercial success, mm-hmm. uh, still, you know, like one of the things that I am trying to get out of, but I used to say is that I would never want to make my entire living, off of just making art because that pressure seems to me as someone who's never had that like to be very but something about this conversation is making me feel like oh like it doesn't necessarily have to change you or what you're interested in right Right. because a lot of artists that i know they have day jobs like mostly i interview working class artists right? right where they their their practice is a separate thing that they have to make space for and um and the relationship to that doesn't seem that dissimilar you know, because it seems like you're still looking for the same thing that that somebody who's maybe not thinking about collectors and whatnot. Right. You know, you're still you, you which is which is refreshing. I think for anybody watching this, that like is, uh, 
because it's it's a really intense thing when you're not when you're when you don't know how that thing how how that system works. You know, I've had people tell me that like when they're showing work to to spaces, right? I'm not going to say which ones, but sure. like one of the things that they've noticed is that they don't want any like there are considerations that like tell me if if this rings true, but they ne- don't necessarily want want one piece in a show to stand out over the other ones. Sure. You know, because then, you know, everybody wants this one piece. And, you know, but then at the same time, it sounds like your process doesn't even consider any of that. Well, I'd be a lot wealthier if, <laughs> if you did. If I did. Um, so you're not advising against. <laughs> I'm not advising against it, but I mean, a couple of things. One, if you work all day long and then you come home or you go to your studio and you work on your work, that's probably one of the sincerest forms of doing that. Yeah. Because. That's fucking hard. No, I agree. I you know? agree. And that's absolutely admirable. You know, I'm not going to say more admirable than somebody who has that same work ethic going into their studio every day and doing that work. Mm-hmm. But to find it in yourself to do that after busting your ass all day, mm. that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, and as far as the commodification of artwork, and the idea that I know I had somebody say that to me once, like, well, don't give them an opportunity to decide which one they like. Mm-hmm. You just let them, they like that. And yeah. that's the only thing that you do. But to me, that's not art. Yeah, You yeah. know, that's, that's art in the sense that you are making a commodity mm-hmm. that you're not make, making, I've been sort of trying to understand this differentiation between an artwork and an artifact. You know, I think that the successful things that I've made in my life that have resonated with people have been artifacts of my life, Mm -hmm. you know, not art works per se. Yeah. yeah. You know, Um, I think that so this is going back to that Friedrich Petzl thing when I said that he came to the studio and didn't like the paintings. He says to me, I said to him, he's like, why are you doing these paintings? And I said, well, because I'm a painter. I had success as a painter, Mm -hmm. sold work as a painter. I'm like, I'm a painter. He goes, no, you're not. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's not what you do that makes you interesting. It's why you do it. Wow. And that to me is like, oh, I have to keep reminding myself of that all the time. Because when I have success with some sort of thing, I could probably propagate that success by making more of that thing. Mm. But I did it. Yeah, Yeah. You know, that's not important anymore. You know, so I don't know. I think that it sounds like an audience, like, like, uh, audience capture is, is something that you're, you kind of are hesitant to get, uh, get wrapped up in. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't know. That's weird when I think about it because, you know, obviously I was an only child and I'm an artist, so I want everyone to love me. (laughs) I love you. Thank you. The reality of that is that it might not coincide with you making the best work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know if you've listened to the Rick Rubin book. Creative no, Act. no. But I, I've, I've heard people have referenced it. It's kind of the yeah, same yeah. thing. Like, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Although, you know, I don't know that I agree with everything in there. But there are aspects of that that I realized that I was doing and struggled to maintain doing and also recognized 
the things that were hard for me to manage as being exactly like, you know, taking myself too seriously, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but I, you know, I like being in that position where I sit, I'm sitting at a, down at a dinner or I had this one time. It was funny that I was with Steve Hansen in Basel and, and I can't remember what year it was. And he's talking to Peter Doig and Chris O'Feely and he didn't introduce me. And I was like, afterwards I was like, why didn't you introduce me to Peter Doig and Chris O'Feely? And then I was like, wait a minute how did I get here <laughs> Like <laughs> that I'm at this party with those guys? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's better to just be naive and dumb. Maybe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Do you, did you, we've been going for an hour and 12, so I don't want to hold, okay. take up too much of your time. I'm having a great time though. So yeah. I also don't want to be like, we're no, done. No, I'm fine, do you, whatever you, do you, want. do you have any, anything that you would want to say on the way out? I usually ask guests when we get around this part, like if there's anything that you maybe thought about, uh, any topics that you, that you maybe wanted to kind of touch up on, on the way. And if we end up going for another hour, that's fine. Or if okay. we go for five minutes, that's fine too. Well, the other thing that I was thinking about was uh, post-scarcity economies, which is sort of antithetical to the idea of art okay. economies. But I have been listening. There's a few books that I've been listening to. Um, one was Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. And one of them was Treconomics by Manu Sadu. Okay. And Treconomics? It, Treconomics. It's the economy of Star Trek. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So if you think about Star Trek, nobody pays for anything in Star Trek. Yeah. Well, like, unless you get into Latinum, go press Latinum in the right. Deep Space Nine. But right. that's but that's not the Starfleet. That's just the that's, Ferengis. Yeah, that's the Ferengis, yeah. But I I think about this idea of and maybe it's it was partly because of the pandemic. And thinking about how people started working collectively. And I'm not a communist by any stretch of the imagination. But when I think about it, why do people, why do people move in these ways where collective good is less important than, you know, like why, why is, why do people rally around retribution faster than they rally around reconciliation? Yeah, Yeah. And I think about, there was a, a woman who lived in my neighborhood who lived at a bus stop. And every couple of weeks, I would stop by and see if she needed anything, you know. And I remember having this conversation with my kids where, you know, my son turned into a vegan. He's already got these political views. And I'm like, I love the idea that you've got this wide-ranging political view. But, like, what happens to people in your neighborhood? Like, make food for them. Yeah. You yeah. know, make sure they're okay. If somebody needs help, help them out. And so I started thinking about this Trekonomics book where he's talking about a post-scarcity economy where everyone has everything they need. And is that attainable? That's where that's where my mind is right now. Yeah, yeah. You know? well, it's interesting, especially because during the pandemic and coming out of that, there was especially like, you know, you remember the situation in uh, Echo Park uh, where, where there was a lot of encampments there yeah. of unhoused people. And one of the things that I found really interesting is this, uh, is the mutual aid efforts that are, Uh and you see that in places like one of the, one of the things that surprised me so much is that in the Rust Belt, like in Detroit and places like that, there are huge active and in LA too, to be fair, I'm not, I'm not, but I'm just saying 
that labor tradition over there of unions and whatnot, they may not be communists or socialists, but they do take care of each other, sort right. of in the way that you're talking about of like, let's, and I think that that kind of came from, you know, when you need to strike, when you need to go on strike, you right. still need to feed yourself. So then right. there's a, there's a network that helps people with mutual aid and stuff like that. So there's some really interesting stuff going on out here in LA. That is actually the, the political stuff that I get more uh, excited about yeah. like because there's a lot of stuff that just seems like a lot of noise to sure. some degree sure. and just seems like uh like it, i don't know uh it in in the in the broad sense of that that is an interesting especially because right now we are definitely in an economy economy that's coming out of the pandemic which is maybe a little fluffed up sure. and 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 a lot of the things that you know, like <laughs> they're putting like bandages, <laughs> band-aids on everything. And everybody's just kind of waiting for the for the other shoe to drop, which is a very crazy feeling. But right. yeah, but I, I do think it would be amazing. I think that, you know, there's different ways of engaging in politics. And I find that to be one of the more admirable ones, even mm. with the current situation, which will just vaguely a, a reference now politically because i don't want to get into it too much on youtube you have people getting e-sims so that people can communicate you mm -hmm. know uh, people buying e-sims which has become the bigger rallying cry after people were realized that calling your representatives for a ceasefire maybe wasn't like right. working in, in, to some degree so it's interesting even in that sense of like people feeling helpless and then trying to figure out right. what it is. And there is an immediate thing that you can do, which by, is give direct support, which is kind of antithetical to like how American government tends to approach these things where right. it's like, you know, the bailout doesn't go to the people losing their houses. The bailout goes to the people that have already, that don't really need it, right. you know, right. to maintain their, their status of wealth. But yeah, I'm totally with you on that. That is a really interesting thing that i i mean I, unfortunately i talk about it but i haven't been as active in it you know yeah, yeah me too i <laughs> <Yeah>. mean <laughs> i think about it on a micro level like you know if i make pizza yeah i take it over to my neighbors yeah and yeah. i give it to them they yeah. don't they probably don't need it yeah, you know yeah. i know they don't need it but i think about like that sort of thing is manageable for me yeah and i sort of figured that if everybody just did that took care of one person then everyone's taken care of yeah you know no that's a really admirable to do it on a larger scale absolutely you know yeah but i think about the the sort of micro scale of that and you know i think about like man wouldn't it be great if money just didn't exist yeah you know <laughs> like it just didn't exist but you have to you know squash your desire for things yeah you know well, what would Bezos hoard over other people if there was no money <laughs> right you know but the funny thing is is that i actually think that like if I was to try and say like, oh, that's a Star Trek replicator. Yeah, yeah. Amazon is a replicator. We literally lay on our couch and we say, you know, Amazon, bring me this. And it comes to your door. Yeah. Like, kind of a replicator. No, it definitely is. Except it's not as free as over there. <laughs> no, but we should just make it free. No, you know? that would be amazing. Yeah. 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 Uh, one of the things that I do see that I, uh, that I think is cool is when people that do have the ability to do so financially, start buying like tents for people and yeah. stuff like that. But one of the things that's disheartening about that process is that a lot of those tents just get thrown away by the city when they do the sweeps. Right. So it's like this like constant need to re-up uh, the, the, the support system. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
but yeah, man, no, that, that is an interesting thing. Do you have a, any other, other thoughts on perception? Cause I, that was actually pretty interesting. And I do, I, I don't want to, I don't want to leave anything on the table if there's anything left. I don't know. I mean, I watched, okay. So Nova has two season 50 had two just, season 50 season 50 <laughs> Nova it puts the Simpsons to shame. <laughs> yeah. It's been on since I was a baby, I think. Wow. Um, so uh, there were two two things about how the mind works. Okay. And uh, this is like, I watched them over and over again. In fact, this Christmas, I got the greatest Christmas gift ever. Okay. My kids took one of my old shirts and in letters wrote, ask me what I saw on Nova. <laughs> because I won't <laughs> shut up about this. But there's, you know... The and one you've been of, watching all 52 seasons? Or have you dropped off? No, I dropped off okay. for a long time. But I got back into it a couple of years ago. Um so if you think about your mind as being this ball of stuff in your head, it can't see, it can't hear, and it can't smell Interesting. anything, right? Yeah, yeah. And so there's one part of the beginning of this program where this guy's like, if you hold your, your thumb out like this and you look at your thumbnail, that's about the only amount regularly that you see in 2020 vision but your eyes moving three times a second, five times a second, and it's scanning the room. So it's taking these little dots of the room and then it's making up the rest. Mm -hmm. So I know that there's guitars on your wall. Mm -hmm. I know that you've got pedals on the floor. I know that there were paintings here and I can be looking at the door and know that they're there, but I'm not actually seeing them. Yeah, yeah. And so all of that's manufactured in your mind. And... I think about the idea of like how so much of our life is just made up in our own mind Yeah, that may or may not exist. And I'm coming to terms with this and in, in even my memories of things that happened, you know, I told you the stuff about there are a lot of fucked if I know if that was true or not, you know, because <laughs> print the legend, right. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. um, memory is is not read only it's yeah, it's yeah. always redone yeah. you know and i think that there's something about the idea of that rewritable memory that creates new neural pathways that causes humans to end up acting in this collective manner where everybody likes justin bieber yeah, so yeah. everybody goes to justin bieber and like the more somebody else likes Justin Bieber, the more you kind of like Justin Bieber. And then all of a sudden it changes. But like, how does that change? What switches that perception of that? But not just like in one person, but like in everybody, you know? No, and, that, and it's interesting also because then it also hits a critical mass. And then sometimes right. people are, you're like, oh, I'm a... I'm a little tired out on this person. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you get overexposed to somebody and you're like, ah, you used to think they were a genius. And now, I mean, not Bieber. Right? Bieber is, is, can't do no wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm not that well aware of him, but I get what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I don't have kids. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, that's really interesting. I've, I, I, so I, a while ago I got into sort of this postmodern, um, like uh, like basically the the magical thinking stuff that it was it informs like Crowley and uh, and um, uh, LRH uh, uh, what's that what's this um, LRH what's his uh, like what is what is his actual name Lafay Lafayette uh, oh I don't know it's the Scientology guy 
Oh, L. Ron Hubbard? L. Ron Hubbard, yeah, yeah. LRH. Because the Scientologists say it like that, and I, I couldn't remember. So yeah. Lafayette, Ron Hubbard, that's yeah. why he goes by L. But um, so he was like a notorious fabricator of stories. Right. Right? Like he, he, you couldn't really tell what was true about him or what was not. Right. He, but he would tell these really engaging stories, and that's how he became magnetic. Sure. And and I recently heard, uh, uh, you know, like just casually, I saw a clip of um, of what's his name Chomsky mm-hmm. ripping into the postmodern like uh, postmodern uh, authors of like the French ones from like I think the seventies and whatnot, and it's really interesting because a lot of that magical thinking stuff is sort of playing with these perceptual games, right? right. Like it, you you know. And going not necessarily into Jungian side, but in terms of therapy, like a lot of times when you go to therapy, you you end up having to like address some of these like conceptions that you have of yourself, right? right? Um, and so one of the things that was really interesting is uh, that that Chomsky was saying about it is that uh, that like the postmodern authors, what they were trying to do was kind of give an air of sophistication to the humanities. And, and give him like not sophistication, but a, an air of scientific. Because like you know, in the in the it, it, it like after the atom bomb was was developed and all of that, like science had a prestige and an elite right. uh, a background to it. And so, I, I started reading this book. That, have you have you ever heard of uh, the uh, Sokol hoax? Uh, it's uh, I think it's Alan Sokol. So basically, this guy it, who is a physicist and actually understands the terminology used by most of these postmodernists. Right. He wrote an article about quantum gravity, and he published. He had he submitted it to a journal, and it was a hoax. Like right. the, the article made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Right, right. And so MSG. Yeah, that was a racist joke. What's MSG? Like monosodium glutamate, like the poison of all poisons in food. Uh huh. A guy wrote a paper in '68 about how MSG was this awful thing that it's not that bad for you no it's not bad for you at all oh okay no but like i'll show you my bag of msg okay (laughs) i I couldn't find small msg to which i but yeah but but yeah so 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 but anyway so he he got it published and then he called it out and he's like this article makes no sense i just used all the flowery language and the point of the article was that of, of doing that was to show that like even the intellectuals that ran this journal i forget what the journal's called but like even like there were highfalutin people sure even they could not suss out that they were getting fucked with essentially right right. and so then i went and i read one of the uh, the the book that it's called uh fashionable nonsense which (laughs) which is like and basically he takes all these uh postmodern like excerpts from postmodern authors and he's like he's he just breaks down how like as a, as a physicist, he understands the languages that they're using and right. the, and the analogies that they're trying to make, and they make no sense at all. <laughs> like they're either trite and really basic, but they're just with this flowery, sophisticated language. So I would read that shit, and it was impenetrable. And then every time I got back to his writing, yeah. I was like, oh, what a relief! Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, I have to read through it. And it's it was a real. It's a I highly recommend it. I mean, it's a it's a tough read because of the postmodern yeah, stuff yeah. in there. But it really is interesting because, like, you know, I think that there is that that speaks to sort of the perceptual thing where it's like he's basically saying that, like, and, and uh, you know, um, like historically leftist, uh, you know, going back, 
leftist ideology comes from probably a little bit out of the French Revolution, which is tied to the Enlightenment. And now with like the way that everything is relative, uh, you know, in in academia and and all of that coming out of this postmodern push, um, there is like such a huge separation between academics and what's actually happening on the ground, that mutual aid stuff that we're right. talking about. And a lot of times people in academia will be like, oh, that's not how you do activism, right. but they're not doing any activism. Doing it. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's a really interesting thing. It was it was mind-blowing to just kind of read this and be like, this is all bullshit. Right. <laughs> you know? But but it is it is it is a really interesting thing because I think that like it it ties into what you were saying about like that that uh that perceptual thing, it's it plays with that in right. terms of like, you know, and that's how people get stuck paying, you know, getting to OT8 right. in, in, in Scientology and like, because you can really construct a reality for somebody right. based entirely on just like these, you know, things where... So it's it's it it really kind of changed my because when I was reading the 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 chaos magic stuff I was like yeah this is awesome you can yeah. trick yourself and then I'm like oh no societally this might yeah. be dangerous. well think about that chaos magic as being like the algorithms on social media yeah yeah for I mean sure. that that you know the idea that the mo of that algorithm is to keep you watching yeah yeah by any means necessary yeah and whoa that's doing a number on the world yeah you yeah know? for sure. Um, I had one thing that I was going to say with, with perception is, um, so I have chickens. Okay. And this was already like maybe six or seven years ago. I have all these different kinds of chickens. One of them was a leghorn and it was a little smaller than the others. And for whatever reason, they started beating her up and pecking at her. And finally they drew blood and I was like, okay, I got to get her out of there. Yeah. Cause they'll kill her. And yeah, 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 yeah. So I take her out and I put her into her own separate cage, but she can still see the other chickens, right? And I'm like, we're going to get you high protein. So I got her some sardines, which they love. And I'm like, here's some sardines, eat the sardines. A can of sardines is sitting there. She's looking through the cage at the other chickens eating crumble. Just going like, doesn't touch the sardines. Because she's, to her, the perception was there's something better over there. Yeah. Rather yeah. than what's actually in front of you. Yeah. You know? And that I think is like so interesting to think about with humans too, that somewhere in the reptile brain is that, that that we have to do that. And, you know, the idea that somebody can manipulate you by making you think that something's better in this other way, rather than you being able to just look at what's in front of you and see if that's good enough. Yeah. You know, as, Yeah. Well, no, totally. And I mean, I feel a little bit like that chicken because I recently did. I also stopped like I I have to still use Instagram to kind of promote the show and whatnot. But now I just do it automated. So I'm not I'm not on the actual website. And then funny things happen where it's like, like, I start to realize how much of that is tied to how I'm perceived, you know, and like the work of maintaining the perception people have of me. Because when I stopped, I was worried that people would think that I was no longer active in right. the in the protest of certain events that are happening globally and I'm like no I'm just I'm just not on Instagram and I'm like that's okay too yeah. you know like so so it, it it's an interesting thing that the that social media stuff is so powerful and one of the things that blows my mind is how people are they're constantly like you need to ban this you need to ban this content you need to silence you need to censor this stuff and no one really talks about the algorithm and why right. you know like no one's like everyone's like 
Google needs to censor on YouTube. Right. Uh, Instagram, Facebook needs to censor on Instagram and all that. But no one's like, why am I getting all this toxic shit thrown at me? Like mo- a lot of this, like half of the time that I'm on YouTube, I'm like trying to understand why it's suggesting things. What I've watched right. that's getting it to suggest these things that I, I don't necessarily think are odious, right. but are, are not for me. You know, right. like 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 the very, the very basic. And and I think part of it is because of that stuff is just automatically. Uh, popular you right. know like like a lot of the the culture war issues that like you know and then it, like stuff will pop up from both sides of it and i'm like why do you think i care right you know they don't uh, they don't think that you care they don't care if you care yeah exactly they just want you to stay on you know and i find myself sometimes clicking on it because the headlines are so and so that sure. it's it's it really is an interesting thing you know like um and then like i saw i saw a clip of um there's this guy uh, that does interesting videos that are kind of um, meta about how YouTube does it. And he just basically does like l- short little videos where he's interacting with himself. And he's like, why is my favorite YouTuber now doing all this like stuff about culture war stuff? Right. And then he looks at the views and he's like, oh, you know, but like no one ever talks about that, you yeah. know, like no, everybody's like, oh, you got to silence this person that got too big. Like, for example, to use a a, a, a tired example is like Andrew Tate. Sure. It's like everybody wants to censor Andrew Tate. No one holds Google accountable for push for, for the algorithm pushing Andrew Tate, pushing, you know, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is really it, it kind of goes to that that perceptual thing. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with the system. There's wrong with this person being popular right. on the system, but the system is what's making him popular. So yeah. it's mind blowing. But that that comes down to I think the concept of rugged individualism. Like, yeah, there was another Nova about uh, Huawei, the company that was doing oh, yeah, the five yeah. G stuff, and you know Mao apparently wanted China to be a manufacturing hub, global manufacturing hub, and. The idea was that as a collective, you had people putting ideas in with no real authorship other than if this works better, let's do that. Mm -hmm. And that's why advances were made so quickly. Rather than having somebody that's like this genius who's like an individual who's come up with this one idea that's great. I mean, yeah. I, and then just like look at Elon Musk, like being the darling of the electric car, you know, and then now he's like a sinner to the same people that all rushed, rushed out to get that car and i'm like and you, i've seen bumper stickers that say i i like to i got this before he was an asshole <laughs> like the, you know where are your convictions if the car is good the car is good right yeah, if it works it works yeah. <laughs> if it kills if it you know so then like it is it, it's an interesting thing like the the branding and stuff i just spent two 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 months in miami just completely like out of LA and like, I mean, th- just hanging out with good old boys. Yeah. And I'm like, they're not that bad. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, when I moved to LA, people were like, well, it's really dangerous there. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I, I guess so. But yeah. that's what, you know, I saw on the news in Winnipeg. Yeah. The reality was not like that at all. No, you know? yeah. I still haven't, like, I mean, I still haven't been in an area where. I don't, I, I don't know. I haven't been in an area where I'm like, oh shit, I should get out of here. Yeah. You know, I don't know what it was, what Compton was like in the nineties, but Compton's fucking nice. Dude. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I haven't it's, been to Compton in the ages. Yeah. It's, uh, it, I mean, 
it just seems like a, a you know it's a neighborhood a, where people live in the neighborhood where people yeah. live exactly like yeah. you know my neighborhood's a little bit run down i'm not going to say which one it is because sure. i don't i don't want to be part of that gentrification like sure. hey but like you know it's still pretty nice yeah. you know it's just not well maintained but right. I, ne- I haven't i've yet to be in a neighborhood and i'm sure they exist i don't want to you know <laughs> but i've yet to be in a neighborhood where i was like worried yeah. of like of any of that you know so yeah yeah totally Anyway, man, this has been a lovely conversation. I yeah, really appreciate you. you coming by and making the time. No problem. This is it. It, I think that uh, people are going to be excited about this one because there's th- there's just questions I've been able to ask you that I just haven't had anyone that had the answers to yet. So <laughs> okay. I, well, really... I don't know if I did either. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anything that we can promote for you, you are uh, at Rudy Bust on Instagram, and you don't always post, so be aware. Yeah. But, uh, he doesn't know anything about Jungian psychology, but you there's a lot of that content there. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. No, I don't know. But there's nothing going on right now. No shows coming up. I got a show, uh, two person show in Paris in April, I think. How often do you show? How, how often do you get shows going? It depends um, when, if I focus on scheduling them. Um, I kind of got like really, uh, why can't I think of the word? Um, what's the word for when? Not lucky. Anyways, anyways, during the pandemic, when I had no deadlines and I made a bunch of work like that, I felt like it was better. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to try and do that where I make a body of work and then I show it, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. I have to make it for something. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's... But do you, do you teach? Do you, do you? I'm doing a teaching. Yeah, I'm teaching at UC Riverside. Okay. This quarter, um, which is great. It's been great. As, um, a, as an adjunct or as a... I'm the visiting assistant visiting. professor. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, would, I, like the, I like being around students. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the idea of, you know, that form of communication. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I haven't done a ton of teaching. Do it here and there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what I got going on. Okay. <laughs> Uh, do you you have a website? And I, you you no, have I don't have a website. You don't have a website. I don't. Well, they can just look up your name. I'm sure they'll find. Yeah, there's plenty stuff. of uh, you know stuff. shows that that have happened, and they can they can sample some of your work. Yeah. Um, totally. and then uh, yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to to go to the uh, to strange the reality, strange yeah. reality, which was really cool. Yeah. To to especially seeing the, the I really liked those drawings from the yeah, the, the royal Co- lodge, royal art lodge. Yeah. Yeah. It, I like especially because I. There's something about like when people are freaking out about something too yeah. that, that makes it more special. So I was like, yeah. hearing all those stories, I was like, it's the perception. Yeah, no, no, definitely, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. So seeing people like freaking out there, yeah. like I was like, oh my god, we got these drawings. You know, uh, Curtis Stage, yeah. also who I think is the director of, yeah, yeah. of the museum, was super excited. So I was just like, oh, cool. Yeah, that no, was great. Uh, but yeah, so thank you so much, and uh, and then uh, thank you guys for watching. We'll be back uh, next week with another artist that may we'll be back next week with another artist with another topic that may or may not be art related Uh, thank you thank you so much